Well, in this past Sunday's sermon, I happened to use the phrase, upset the apple cart. When I got home, my wife wondered if any of the younger people in the crowd even knew what I was talking about. I mean, how long has it been since you've seen an apple cart? And why would upsetting one even be a problem? And it got me thinking about other outdated terms that we commonly use, such as turn the channel. You never really turn the channel anymore. What about dial a number? What about roll up the window? What about hang up the phone? I mean, when was the last time you actually hung up a phone? This got me thinking about another term that Bible readers often use, but they probably no longer understand. It's the word holiness. We read about it throughout the scriptures, but seldom do we talk about it in everyday life. Sadly, a lot of pastors no longer address the issue. Yet holiness is Paul's theme. Here at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and again at the beginning of chapter 7. According to Paul, every Christian should live a holy life. Notice verse 1. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, this word translated holy or holiness means something special or something sacred to God. Often we think of holiness as an intrinsic quality. That what's holy is either better or purer than what's not. But that's really not the right use of the word. In the Old Testament, the bowls and the utensils used in the temple were considered to be holy. Not because they were made from any special metals or according to some specific design. Their construction could have been the same as any other vessel. But what made them special, what made them holy, was their dedication to the Lord's service. You see, it was their consecration, not their composition, that made them holy. Once there was a mom who thought that her household rules would carry more weight with her children if they were written like Old Testament laws. I mean, surely her kids would obey biblically sounding commandments. Here's a sampling of what she wrote. Of the beasts of the field... And of the fish of the sea, and of all foods that are acceptable in my sight, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the hooved animals, broiled or ground into burgers, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the clothen hooved animals, plain or with cheese, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of the cereal grains, of the corn, and of the wheat, and of the oats, and of the cereals that are of bright color, you may eat, but not in the living room. Of frozen dessert and of all frozen after-meal treats, you may eat, but absolutely not in the living room. Of the juices and other beverages, yes, even of those in sippy cups, you may drink, but not in the living room. Neither may you carry such therein. Indeed, when you reach the place where the living room carpet begins, and of any food or beverage, there you may eat, neither may you drink. But if you are sick and are lying down and watching something, then may you eat in the living room. 
Obviously, except for a few very special occasions, that living room is off limits. You get the message? Well, I'm sure in this mom's living room, I'm sure it was constructed out of the same materials as every other room in her house. But she had dedicated that living room as a special room for special functions, and therefore, what was allowable in other rooms was not necessarily allowable allowable in the living room. This is how you should understand the word holiness. Your life, in essence, is God's living room. You're the place where he continues his work, where he lives out his life. And he's very picky about what happens in his living room. You see, what goes on in any other room? In essence, another person's life isn't as important as what goes on in a Christian's life because a Christian is special to God. Not because we're intrinsically better or more pure than our peers, but because we're God's child. We're dedicated to Him. Our life is consecrated to God. Thus, anything that defaces the beauty or the purity of your life, anything that tarnishes your witness, becomes off limits. We as Christians need to live a holy life. Paul continues, Open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have cheated no one. And talk about holiness in the way a person carries out his ministry. Here's a great example. I think every minister, every pastor should be able to say, I've wronged no one, I've corrupted no one, I've cheated no one. Remember in chapter 6, verse 11, Paul had confessed that his heart was wide open to the Corinthians. He'd been honest and straightforward with them, no hidden agendas. Now he calls on them to return the favor. He knows they've been criticizing him and talking about him behind his back. He wants them to put away their duplicity. He says in verse 3, I do not say this to condemn, but I have said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I mean, the believers in Corinth had betrayed Paul and had broken his heart. Why? Because he loved them. He was willing to die for them and live with them. He says, great is my boldness of speech towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. Paul had even bragged about the Corinthians to other churches. I mean, they were a powerful church. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. But while Paul was proud of them, they had been criticizing and questioning him. Paul was a pastor who cared about his flock, but the fickle sheep were bleeding about their pastor. This was a bad situation. And yet Paul still takes heart. He says, I am filled with comfort. I am exceedingly joyful in all our tribulation. For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. And it's a bit sobering for us to hear the Apostle Paul admitting to a little fear and trepidation. He admitted, inside were fears. Man, when we got to Macedonia, it got scary. At times, the courageous apostle became afraid. You know, it's been said, courage is not the absence of fear, but the willingness to trust God in the midst of our fear. In other words, if your knees knock, kneel on them. He says, nevertheless, God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Now, I love this title that Paul gives to God. 
He calls him the God who comforts the downcast. This word downcast was used by shepherds. Whenever a plump sheep would fall on its back and couldn't right itself on its own, it was referred to as downcast. Apparently, Paul was so distressed there in Macedonia. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears, that he needed help to get up. And God met his need by sending him a friend named Titus. You know, often God helps us get up through a friend. So often, our wounds get bandaged and washed. He restores us to hope and perspective. He gets us back up on our feet. How? Through the encouragement of a friend. This is what Paul did with Titus. He comforted him by the coming of Titus and the news that he brought. He says, and not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you when he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now, Paul was in Macedonia when Titus brought news of the Corinthians' reaction to his previous letter. You remember what it was? What comes before 2 Corinthians? You got it. You guys are bright. 1 Corinthians. That was his previous letter. Though Paul had rebuked them for their fear and their divisiveness and their carnality, many of the church in Corinth had repented, and they had taken heed to Paul's instructions. This was a good thing. Paul was comforted. He says in verse 8, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. Now, when, when I was a child at times, I got a little naughty. And my dad would lay me over his knee. He'd pull off his belt. You better believe he did. And he'd whip my little rear end. And he would always say to me afterwards, Sandy, that hurt me more than it hurt you. And I never believed him. Until I became a parent. Yep. And now I know it's true. And guess what I would say to my kids before I spanked them? Son, this is going to hurt you more than it's going to, this is going to hurt me. That's what I wanted to say to my kids. But what I said to my kids was, son, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. It's true. It really is an agonizing ordeal to discipline someone we love. And this is how Paul felt when he wrote 1 Corinthians. Nobody likes, likes it when their sin gets exposed. Nobody likes a reprimand. A good rebuke hurts. It even makes us angry at first. You might try to dodge it with excuses or recoil with criticism toward the rebuker. This was how some of the folks, too, had responded there in Corinth. See, Paul knew the risks he was taking by reprimanding the Corinthians. But he had no regrets. He says, I don't regret making you sorry. I did it first, but not now. Paul wasn't worried about Paul. He didn't need to be liked. His ministry wasn't some popularity contest. Paul, his only interest was the glory of God and the health of this church. You know, Hebrews 12 teaches us that a parent who refuses to discipline their child doesn't really love that child. Paul loved the Corinthians. He loved them enough to hold them accountable for their sin. Here's the truth. 
He was willing to risk his friendship with them to salvage their fellowship with God. Real brothers, they love that way. They do that kind of stuff. We should be glad that we have pastors here at our church that are willing to do the same and willing to discipline others when they need. Paul continues, For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. The Corinthians were sad for a season, but after the sting of the spanking had subsided, the discipline worked. Paul's truth and his love led to their repentance and to a godly sorrow. He says in verse 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Notice here, there are two types of sorrow over sin. There is godly sorrow, and there is worldly sorrow. Reminds me of the man. He was tormented by a haunting secret. You see, he worked down at the lumber yard. And one day, he went to confessionally. He admitted to the priest, he said he'd been stealing wood. The priest asked him how much. He said, well, just enough to build me a house and my son a house and my two daughters a house and a small little cottage for us up at the lake. The priest was appalled. My son, this is such a serious offense. I'll have to think of a severe penance for you. Have you ever thought of doing a retreat? The fellow got so excited, he says, No, but if you can get the plans, I can get the lumber. That's not godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is being sorry you got caught. You know, it's being sorry that you're going to be punished. It tries to escape the consequences of the sin. Avoid the punishment at all costs. Oh, it produces crocodile tears, but no real desire for change. Worldly sorrow is self-centered sorrow. It's a self-pitying sadness. It's a woe-is-me kind of sorrow, whereas godly sorrow is God-directed and God-honoring. You're sorry you broke the heart of God. You're sorry you thumbed your nose in God's face. You're sorry you offended Him. Godly sorrow accepts the consequences of my actions. It doesn't buck or resent proper punishment. It seeks not only my forgiveness, but an opportunity and the power to change. Godly sorrow yields real repentance. Paul continues, he said, For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication. In all things you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. If you want to discern if a person is truly repentant, well, here's a good checklist right here. Use Paul's checklist. Is there a diligence now to do the right thing? Is there a desire on this person's part to rebuild their reputation? Is there a hatred of sin now? Is there a fear of God? Is there a willingness to do whatever it takes to overcome that sin in the future? Is there a passion for God? Is there a longing to make things right? If these things are present, then the repentance was real. Once there was a Sunday school teacher. She asked her kids, she says, Who can tell me what you have to do to gain God's forgiveness? One little boy answered, he said, 
Well, first you've got to sin. Got to sin to get God's forgiveness. First you've got to sin. You, you, you get it? Sadly, I know some adults with the same attitude. They sin to be forgiven, it seems. And they're forgiven just so they can sin again. There's no real repentance. There's no desire to break the cycle, to be different. Either they're enjoying their sin or they're crying for forgiveness. But there's no godly sorrow. I mean, don't you really want to overcome what's dragging you down? Understand, without real repentance, there can be no real forgiveness. This is what Esau discovered in the Old Testament. Hebrews 12, verse 17 says of Esau, he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. You see, a flood of tears is no substitute for a repentant heart. Remember also Judas. Matthew 27, verse 3 tells us, Then Judas, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver. You remember Judas was sorry that he betrayed Jesus. But it was not a sorrow that caused him to, to face up to what he had done, to try to make amends. Rather than seek God's forgiveness and restoration, Judas sulked off in his sorrow. He tried to avoid the consequences of his actions by committing suicide. He took the easy way out. Hey, real repentance will produce real change. Godly sorrow produces real repentance. Verse 12, Therefore, although I wrote to you, I did not do it for the sake of him who had done the wrong, nor for the sake of him who suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear to you. Now, you remember the original incident there in Corinth that had provoked this church discipline. A man and his father's wife were living together in blatant immorality. And the church was proud of their tolerance. This is what made it so, so terrible. Paul says to them, no way. Either these people need to repent or you need to kick them out. You see, a church can no more tolerate unrepentant sin in its midst than the human body can tolerate cancer. You leave it alone. You try to ignore it. It'll end up destroying you. So it is with the church. Certainly, Paul confronted this couple out of love for them. That was not his only consideration. Here he tells us Paul also loved the Corinthian church. And he knew this kind of compromise would destroy its witness. Thus, he was looking out for the church's best interests. He says, therefore, we have comforted you in your comfort, and we rejoiced exceedingly more for the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I am not ashamed. But as we spoke all these things to you in truth, even so our boasting to Titus was found true. And his affections are greater for you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling you received him. Therefore, I rejoice that I have confidence in you in everything. The Corinthians had lived up to Paul's confidence in them. They had received his rebuke with a godly sorrow. He also thanks them now for their kindness toward Titus. Chapter 8. Once there was this infant. He was playing on the carpet when all of a sudden he picked up a quarter. He stuck it in his mouth and he accidentally swallowed it. Well, the mother saw what happened and went hysterical. 
She screamed to her husband. She said, quick, honey, call 911. The baby just swallowed a quarter. The husband responded, forget 911. Call the pastor. He can get money out of anybody. Well, in the next two chapters, Paul, Paul's intent is to get money out of the Corinthians. He's going to teach on giving. And Paul's epistle is about to become a fundraising letter. You see, famine had hit Judea. The region had followed on hard times. Believers in Jerusalem were hungry and hurting. And Paul saw their need as an opportunity, not only to meet their need, but to bridge the gap between Jewish and Gentile Christians. You see, Paul wanted to collect an offering from among the Gentile churches for the church in Jerusalem. The Gentiles had a debt of gratitude they owed to the Jerusalem church that they needed to acknowledge. Remember, the Jewish church had sponsored the first missionaries that had gone out and taken the gospel to the Gentiles. The love these Gentiles could now show the Jews would be a way to reciprocate that kindness. The Jews would be impressed with the genuineness of their faith and love. Paul had already collected an offering for Jerusalem there in Macedonia, and he's going to use their example to inspire the Corinthians. Verse 1. Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded in the riches of their liberality. Now notice first, Paul calls their monetary offering not a gift, but a grace. When we receive the spiritual favors of God, We'll just naturally want to return a show of gratitude in a tangible way. Thus, giving is a response to God's grace. Reminds me of the family that attended church that took the offering just before they celebrated communion. Dad would always give the kids a dime that they could put in the collection plate. One Sunday, the youngest boy, he was new to the adult service and he was about to receive the communion when his mom sort of gently whispered to him and said, Son, you need to sit back down yet. You're not ready to take communion just yet. With a loud voice, this boy protested. He, he, he didn't go along with it. He was upset. He shouted out, Why not? I just paid for it. He thought his offering had paid for the communion. And sadly, that's how many Christians think it works. God's favor can be purchased. It can be earned, or so they think. No, no. God's favor is a free gift. If your offering is an attempt to buy God's pardon or God's blessing or God's favor, then just put it back in your wallet. God's grace, His gifts are unbought. They're unsought. They're unwrought. Here's the point. You don't give to get. You give because you're grateful. Giving is a response to the grace that God has shown us. God has been so good to us, our giving to Him is our way to say thanks. And apparently, the Macedonian churches, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, you remember them from our study through Acts, they were grateful for God's grace. Even though times were tough, they were still generous. Paul says that they were in deep poverty, verse 2. That expression literally means rock-bottom destitution. In other words, they were as poor as dirt. This term was used for a beggar 
with nothing going for him and with no hope for changing his lot. Though the Macedonians had very little, they still gave generously. And I think it just goes to show that if you wait until you can afford to tithe to start, you'll never start. Did you know statistics show that poor people are proportionally far more generous than rich people? Did you know that? In 2001, a study done by a group called Independent Sector showed that folks making under $25,000 a year gave away 4.2% of their income to charity, while $75,000 a year in overwage earners, they gave just 2.7%. You know, it just goes to prove that a person's willingness isn't tied as much to what's in their bank account as it is to what's in their heart. That's the truth of it. Giving is far more about your faith than it is your finances. Your amount in your bank account might affect the amount you can give, but it should never affect your willingness to give or even the regularity of your giving. Remember the widow's mite? That little coin she dropped in the offering box? What impressed Jesus wasn't the size of the woman's offering, but it was the amount that was left afterwards. She gave all that she had. She didn't just tip God. She gave sacrificially. And this is what had impressed Paul about the Macedonians. Notice verse 3. For I bear witness that according to their ability, yes, and beyond their ability, they were freely willing, imploring us with much urgency that we would receive the gift and the fellowship of the ministering to the saints. The Macedonians, they weren't pressured or badgered into giving. They're the ones that came to Paul and asked if they could give. You know, it always blesses me when someone approaches us and says, hey, you guys don't pass the offering plate here. How can I give an offering? That's good. I think we're doing it right when people have to come up and ask where they can give their offering. It's a good sign. He says, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. And notice the priorities here among the Macedonians. Before they gave money to God, they first gave themselves. Too many folks try to buy God off with a few bucks. You know, they give God an offering to pacify their conscience. They give to sort of get God off their back and, and make Him leave them alone, or at least so they think. Here's the problem. God can care less about your money until He has your heart and your mind and your soul and your strength. He wants you, not your money. And yet on the flip side, how can you say that you've given all to God if you're not really willing to give Him a tithe of 10%? You know, in medieval times, when armies were converted to Christianity, many of the soldiers who were being baptized would hold their right hand up out of the water. It was a way of saying that they were giving everything to God except their sword hand. Just in case, sometime later, they had to grab their sword and rush into battle and kill somebody. You know, today it seems that people are baptized with their right hand out of the water, holding their wallet. They're willing to give Jesus every area of their lives except their finances. This was not like the Macedonians. Verse 6. So we urge Titus that as he had begun, so he would also complete this grace in you as well. As Paul had commissioned Titus, Paul had, Titus was the one that Paul had commissioned to receive this offering. He goes on. 
But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. You see, the church in Corinth had prided themselves in their use of spiritual gifts. But so what if they spoke in tongues? So what if they healed people and discerned spirits if they were still greedy and stingy? You know, on occasion you'll find a Christian who will excuse away his responsibility to give to God financial, financially. He'll say something like, well, that's just not my gift. Paul disagrees. Giving should be everybody's gift. Remember, our giving is our response to God's grace. We're all called on to open up our hearts and our wallets to God. Verse 8, I speak not by commandment, but I am testing the sincerity of your love by the diligence of others. Again, his mention of the Macedonians was to stir them on. He was to stir them up by their example. But there's another example that Paul brings up. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. He's saying, if you don't want to follow the Macedonians' example, well, hey, what about our Lord Jesus? Our Lord made himself materially poor that we could become rich spiritually. Talk about giving. Jesus is the ultimate example. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you also must complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so there also may be a completion out of what you have. You see, Christianity and tennis have this in common. A good serve requires a good follow-through. Good intentions aren't enough. Coulda, woulda, shoulda, doesn't cut it. Evidently, a year earlier, the Corinthians had started taking up this offering for the church there in Jerusalem, but they had never finished. Reminds me of the pastor's son who had heard words at church like justification and sanctification and glorification and reconciliation, all these big words, all these Asians. One day in school, he was asked, does anyone know what the word procrastination means? The little guy, he raised his head and he answered, well, I'm not sure what it means, but I know my church sure believes in it. You know, you tell enough of these jokes, sometimes they're going to laugh at least at something. Hey, God wants us to obey. Not just dream about it. Not just talk about obeying. Not just plan on obeying. But He wants us to actually obey. He wants us to finish what we start. Let's, let's be an obedient church, not a procrastinating church. Verse 12. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what he does not have. In other words, don't get hung up on the amount of your offering. What's most important is a willing mind, a sincerity, he says. Give regularly and sacrificially, and God is pleased, whatever percentage or amount that turns out to be. He says, for I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by equality. I mean, this is the genius behind how the church has raised funds over the years through the simple tithe. Everybody gives a different amount, but the same percentage. That, that seems fair. 
that everybody is commanded to give, not just one wealthy benefactor. Everyone gives a different amount, but they all give the same percentage. Paul doesn't expect the Corinthians to give it all. He's collecting an offering from all the Gentile churches, he's saying. See, here's God's wisdom in action. If everybody gives their share, then the giving isn't a burden on any one person. And so here's the question for us. Are you giving your share? Am I giving my share? Once there was an old ornery country pastor who needed to raise some revenues for the church. And so he stood up before the offering one Sunday and he announced to his congregation, he said, before we pass the plate today, I just want to ask the person who stole Brother Harvey's chickens not to give their offering. God doesn't want a thief's money. Well, needless to say, for the first time in months, everyone in the church chipped in that morning. They donated their offering. And this is God's financial plan. Everybody chips in. Everybody does their share. God is after an equality in our giving. He says that now, at this time, your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. Here he quotes Exodus chapter 16, verse 18. Now, sometimes I can give more than you. At other times, you can give more than me. But if we all give our share, then it balances out. There might end up a time when the Corinthians are in need and the Jerusalem church will have to come to their aid. Right now, the roles are reversed. Verse 16, But thanks be to God who puts the same earnest care for you into the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted the exhortation, but being more diligent, he went to you of his own accord. And we have sent with him the brother whose praise is in the gospel throughout all the churches. And we're not quite sure who this brother was. Perhaps it was Luke. Maybe it was Timothy. And not only that, but who has also chosen by the churches to travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself, and to show your ready mind, avoiding this, that anyone should blame us in this lavish gift which is administered by us, providing honorable things, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. And we have sent with them our brother, whom we have often proved diligent in many things, but now much more diligent because of the great confidence which we have in you. Now, whoever this praiseworthy brother happened to be, it was his job to accompany the offering to Jerusalem with Paul. It was a security precaution. If someone happened to come along and steal the money, if something happened to the money, if it was lost or perhaps it was sunk in a shipwreck, Paul didn't want anyone accusing him of absconding with the funds. Paul made himself accountable and he brought along another brother to testify to what to how it was handled. I, I like this. I think this is good. In the church, we need precautions when it comes to the funds. I like what Bible commentary Charles Hodge writes here. He says, It was not enough for the apostle to do right. He recognized the importance of appearing right. We are bound to act in such a way that not only God, who sees the heart and knows all things, may approve of our conduct, but also that men may be constrained to recognize our integrity. I like that. 
Paul was wise to create procedures that would safeguard his ministry and his integrity. We're wise as well when we do the same. Verse 23, If anyone inquires about Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker concerning you. For if our brethren are inquired about, they are messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. Therefore, show to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. Chapter 9. Now concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous or unnecessary for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia, that was the region around Corinth, was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Again, Paul was shrewd. In the previous chapter, he uses the generosity of the Macedonians as an example to Corinth. But when he was in Macedonia, he talked about the Corinthians' good intentions to give an offering as an example to them. In other words, he found something commendable in both churches and used it to spur the other on. He goes on, Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand, which you had previously promised. Paul wants to avoid an embarrassing situation and a poor witness. I mean, he doesn't want to show up in Corinth with the Macedonians and there be no offering to take with them. He's been talking them up at Corinth. Now he's concerned about the Corinthians letting him down. And he's also concerned about the attitude behind their giving. He says that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Paul was clear. He didn't want anyone to give to God with a grudge. I know some people who do that. They give, but they give with a grudge. If after all that God has done for you, if you have to force yourself into writing that check, just keep your filthy money. God wants you to give because you want to, not because you have to. If you can't find a reason to give all you've got to God after what He's given you, shame on you. I love verse 6. He says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Did you know your offering is like a seed? Plant or invest in God's work and it will yield spiritual rewards. In reality, none of us can give anything to God anyway. He owns all that we possess. Our giving is really an opportunity just to invest and participate in God's purposes. It's been said of money, you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. You can lay up treasure in heaven by giving to God's work in the here and now. And verse 6 adds an important principle. He says, the degree to which you give is the degree to which you get. Did you know that? Sow sparingly, and you're going to reap sparingly. Sow bountifully, and you're going to reap bountifully. Give a little, get a little. Give a lot, you get a lot. Don't forget, you reap in proportion to what you sow. 
Are you talking about money? Yeah, I'm talking about money. I'm talking about spiritual blessings as well. But certainly I'm talking about God's provision in our finances. If you're hoarding your finances and not honoring God in that area of your life, how are you going to expect Him to bless that area so that you can prosper and be abundant in that area? You know, you become like the Dead Sea. It just flows in and nothing flows out. And it just dies in the, in the middle. And we want to be like a channel of blessing so that God can pour in and we can pour out. And, and when God sees that that's happening, the, the more we pour out, the more He'll want to pour in. That's how it works. He says, so let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. I mean, giving needs to be personal. Let each one purpose in his heart. It's between you and God. It needs to be volitional, not grudgingly or of necessity. And it needs to be cheerful. God loves a cheerful giver. This means that a pastor should never lay a trip on people and put a dollar amount on their giving. We're under grace, not law. We shall be led by the Spirit in our giving. Up to us and God what we give. A person should never pressure or manipulate folks to give as if God needs their money or if God's purposes are going to fail if they don't give. It's true. You might miss out on a blessing if you don't give, but trust me, God's work will go on. He can fund His work. See, God wants you and I to be cheerful givers. You know, the phrase could actually be translated hilarious givers. God wants us to give with a smile on our face. This is why the best approach for a pastor is to stress God's grace and God's blessings, all the blessings we received, all the love we've been shown. For when a believer truly knows how much God loves them and how much He's given to them, then they'll look for opportunities to give back to Him. And it's been described, there are three types of givers. There's the flint, there's the sponge, and there's the honeycomb. The flint has to be struck to give, sadly. The sponge has to be squeezed, but the honeycomb just oozes out. The sweetness on the inside overflows. You know, it's wrong for a church to hammer or squeeze its folks for money. If people are being fed God's word, they'll be fruitful. They'll produce their own sweetness. Their giving to God will be a natural response to the work that God is doing in them. Paul's strategy in Corinth was to simply trust God. He kept calm and collected. Verse 8. Did you get it? No. Okay. He kept calm and collected. Verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. I mean, despite how some preachers paint him, God is never, he never has been, he never will be on the verge of bankruptcy. I mean, he is and always will be capable of supporting his work. He is sufficient. As it is written, and here he quotes Psalm 112 verse 9. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. 
For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. In other words, the offering being collected, it's not only going to meet the church's physical needs, but it's going to bless them spiritually. It's going to cause the Jews in Judea there to just be grateful to God, to praise God from the bottom of their hearts, and that's a good thing. And this should be the motivation behind our giving, not only to meet a spiritual need, but to glorify God. Notice verse 13. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ, for your liberal sharing with them and all men, and by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Corinth's gift to the church at Jerusalem was an answer to the Jews' prayers for the Corinthians. They'd been praying for the love and growth of the Gentile saints. Now this offering was an answer to their prayers. Paul concludes chapter 9. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And how fitting it is to wrap up a discussion on giving by reminding the Corinthians of the greatest gift, God's indescribable gift, His Son, Jesus Christ.